It's Monday Pun Day. You know, many things get better with age, like cheese or a fine wine. But when it comes to puns, a pun isn't completely mature until it's full grown. Helping you grow deeper on your spiritual journey. Welcome to The Inner Life with Patrick Conley. Welcome to The Inner Life. I'm Patrick Conley, your host for the hour of spiritual direction ahead. First off, happy Victoria Day to all of our Canadian listeners and those of Canadian heritage. Hope you celebrate well today. And second, thanks to my friend Jim, who's a listener to the program, for his offering of the pun that began the show. If you have a pun that you'd like to share, send it to us in an email, innerlifeatrelevantradio.com, and it may just get used on the air. Many things do indeed get better with age, to a point. When I studied physics, I remember learning that entropy is time's arrow. In other words, physical things break down over time. And that's true of everything from cars to technology, from houses to hoses. And especially if you're over a certain age, you know it's true of human bodies as well. With increasing years comes repeated recognitions that you just can't do some of the stuff you used to do. I remember it sounds silly, and I apologize for it, but I remember the feeling I got when I definitively realized that I would never play professional baseball. Now, look, I knew I was never going to play professional baseball. I'm not talented. I'm not athletic enough. But it was something that, as a kid, I kind of aspired to. But this recognition was jarring enough that it made me realize that I was past my prime physically. Now, generally speaking, when things break down, you either fix them or throw them away. And if it can't be fixed, that's a pretty sure sign that whatever it is is headed for the junkyard. But what about human bodies that break down or that don't function like they're supposed to? What's our view of the elderly, the disabled, the terminally ill? What if the body is broken or the mind deteriorated to the point that the person can't function? What if the person himself or herself is desirous of dying? Is it ever truly merciful to practice euthanasia? That's our topic here on The Inner Life today, euthanasia and end of life. If you have a story to share or questions about these issues, our studio line is 888-914-9149. And our spiritual director for this important discussion today is Father Carter Griffin. Father Griffin is the rector of St. John Paul II Seminary in the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. Welcome back to the program, Father. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you again. Well, let's start just with, uh, before we get to the euthanasia, let's clarify some things, Father, about the Church's view of death and of dying. Can you take us into that a bit? Sure. Um, Well, I mean, I think, you know, dying is one of these things that every human being knows about. It's that kind of process of... uh, of detachment, where the soul leaves the body. It's, it's uh, when, as you said, the body breaks down and is definitively is no longer able to be uh, the matter for the, for the, um, for the soul. And, it, and it's, it's the result of original sin. Uh, and so it's something that wasn't in the plan from the beginning. Um, and when the soul separates from the body, there is, of course, the judgment that takes place after that. Uh, and also later, the resurrection, uh, whether in heaven or in hell, that there will be the, re- the risen bo- the, the body will be raised, um, and there will be for the souls in, in glory, the kind of the, glor- the, the glorified body. Um, dying is something that 
with the overlay and the, and, the, and the lens of faith, we're able to understand, is this moment of encounter with the Lord? And it, it, so it's not just a physical or even just a psychological process, but it's a spiritual, and above all, a spiritual moment when we, when we encounter our God. Um, and so the goal, really, of, of our human life and of politics and of everything is not actually to end death. Even though death is the result of original sin, it's not as though um, we, through some tra- transhumanist movement or whatever, is, are, are going to be able to overcome death. Even if we could, it, we as Christians know that death is necessary. Um, as I think it was, it was um, Teresa of Avila who said, if you want to see... If you want to meet Jesus, you have to die. You know, and she meant it sort of in both senses of the word. We have to die in this life, but we also have to die, die. You know, in order to in order to encounter Him. So there's kind of a there's a physical and there's also a spiritual dimension, both of which are important to keep in mind in this discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Physical and spiritual dimension, and and I'm sure, as you said, that will tie back into our discussion on euthanasia and end of life questions. What about uh, specifically? You know, I was mentioning uh, the disabled or the terminally ill. Um, there's a good deal, I don't think any of us are strangers to this, there's a good deal of suffering that goes on, and perhaps specifically physical suffering that, that does come upon us, especially in uh, in our elderly years. So what's the Church's view specifically on suffering, Father? Right. Well, the you know, suffering is, is that encounter, I mean, pain is the encounter of, of evil uh, on the physical body, you know, and and suffering is something that many people think is uniquely human, uh, is the result of our rational reflection on pain. You know, that pain is something that we reflect on from the past, something we're thinking about right now, something that we anticipate in the future. And so suffering is, in some sense, is a very deeply human thing. Um, and so, and, and suffering is a, is a real, it's, it's obviously unpleasant, it's difficult, it's hard for anyone to go through any kind of suffering. And for many, it can be a real challenge to their faith. Why would God allow me? Uh, to suffer in this way. But we, we also know that with the grace of faith, we are able to kind of see with a deeper um, perspective and a kind of a clearer lens that suffering is not, is not the end. Um, it's, uh, suffering is something that can help purify us and detach us from things that we're, to which we're attached, including our own health sometimes. Um, suffering is something that can prepare us uh, by humbling us before the Lord uh, to prepare us for, uh, for, for death. And above all, suffering is something that can be endowed, endowed with meaning uh, and with purpose when it's united to Christ. And that's something that, you know, it's, that's, a, that's a, perhaps the most countercultural teaching of all. Because in, in many respects, the, our contemporary culture here in the West anyway, seems to be saying through actions and sometimes with words that the ultimate evil is suffering. And the goal of human life is to avoid or overcome uh, suffering. And we as Christians simply don't believe that, right? We don't believe that the ultimate evil is suffering. We believe the ultimate evil is sin, separation from God. And so there are times when we uh, embrace suffering uh, because this is what, what, this is the cross that we're called to carry, and it's something that can actually purify us and help us on that path towards union with God. Mm-hmm. And I do believe, as you were pointing out, Father, that the Church's view on suffering is something that plays directly into this conversation as we're talking mm-hmm. about euthanasia today and end-of-life questions Our spiritual director is Father Carter Griffin, uh, the rector of St. John Paul II Seminary in Washington, and also uh, publisher, or he's he's authored three books, Why Celibacy, Reclaiming the Fatherhood of the Priest, Cross-Examined, Catholic Responses to the World's Questions, and most recently, Forming Fathers, Seminary Wisdom for Every Priest. Um, So maybe there was a time when you faced an end-of-life issue, um, and you 
had to come to a decision. What was that like? Give us a call. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Again, 888-914-9149. Well, Father, let's get into the the thick of it here with euthanasia. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are we talking about? I mean, it may not be a, f- a familiar term to many, or they may have a vague idea about it, but what specifically is euthanasia? Sure. Uh, euthanasia, the word literally means good death. So the idea uh, behind euthanasia is to provide people with a quote-unquote good death. And that um, can take on all kinds of meanings. Historically, it has. And, you know, there have been euthanasia of people who are mentally handicapped. There have been euthanasia of people who are deemed undesirable. Uh, In more recent years, it tends not to be those kind of explicitly eugenic or racist approaches to to this, but it's more the people who are suffering, who no longer want to live, or maybe are an extreme burden on the medical or um, the medical system, and cost, you know cost them a lot of money and so forth. So, so this is where we have the idea of like gently and peacefully uh, cause, causing the death, not allowing the death, but causing the death of somebody. This might be done by somebody else with or without the, the patient's permission. I mean, thank heavens that I think happens less commonly here, although I think it probably does happen behind closed doors in certain elderly facilities. But more importantly, it often happens nowadays in many states legally through physician-assisted suicide. So this would be the whole death with dignity approach and things like that. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. Right. Okay. That's good. Uh, Clarifying the issues here. And uh, well, then take us into, based on what you've already said about the church's view on death, dying, and suffering, and then this definition of euthanasia that you've just offered, Father, what is the church's take on euthanasia? Well, you know, I mean, euthanasia is causing the death of another, and so in, and without, you know, there, there being other extenuating circumstances like self-defense and things like that. So it's, it's a violation of divine law because we believe that there is already um, the one who has authority over our life and over our death is God. Um, and it's, it's not our, we are stewards, not owners of our lives, of our bodies. And, and, and very often it's the intentional, <laughs> excuse me, killing of some of, of some of the most vulnerable members of, of society, uh, the ill, the elderly, the disabled, um, and these vulnerable people deserve more, not not less support from us. You know, more compassion, more legal protection, not less. So, uh, fundamentally, what what it you know where the church the church's approach to this is that, and 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 there there are complexities which I hope we get into about because um, I think some people can hear this and think that therefore the church says. The goal is to keep people alive, whatever the cost, <clears throat> excuse me, whatever the risk, whatever, whatever the desires of the patient, and sort of like this physicalism. It's just like keeping pe- people physically alive till we can absolutely not keep. And that's just not the church's teaching at all. Mm-hmm. And so the death with dignity is something we can understand that, um, understand and that desire, but that doesn't trump all. That there are other considerations that are involved in, uh, including the simple fact that we we don't control absolutely our time of our time of. Of, of life, and nor do we control absolutely the time of our of our death. So ultimately, it's a violation of of divine uh, of divine law, and and a kind of and a kind of murder, really. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it. Right, right. And I think in this situation, it might be helpful just to outline too that uh, the church. I mean, we got to be careful that those who maybe are in favor of euthanasia to you know, not to paint them as these bloodthirsty murderers either. There yeah. are there are reasons that they, you know, may hold. So maybe that's it. What what are some of the reasons why some do choose euthanasia or would look to at least entertain the idea or the, the possibility of euthanasia? 
Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think in most, the vast majority of cases, it's a kind of misinformed and not clearly thought through compassion. You know, it's a kind of misdirected, but, 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 but true compassion. And, and, you know, more than anything else, it's the desire to end suffering. That's not a bad thing. I mean, you know, Catholics have been involved in that work for longer than anybody else, you know, in trying to mitigate suffering and, and bring um, not just the joy of, of faith, but also just physical health and healing and, and charitable works. So the desire to end suffering, of course, is at the root of a lot of it. Um, sometimes, and there's sort of overlap here, when I mentioned, I've mentioned a couple times already, this death with dignity kind of slogan, and, and, and that, of course, makes a lot of sense, and we all, who doesn't want death with dignity? Um, but the, the problem there becomes, because it's motivated by this, what may be a slightly misdirected um, or exaggerated compassion, you know, that other things can be lost in the midst of that thing, uh, in the midst of that analysis. And so just because we feel a little bit uh, our physical or intellectual capacity is declining, or we feel that we're a burden to others, um, you know, that that um, even the, the diminished sense of self-worth, I mean, that, that's a suffering in there, and there's a, there's a kind of a cross that we carry in that, but that doesn't give us the right then to kind of circumvent kind of the God's own plan for us, you know, and, and sort of short, short-circuiting when we die. So that, I think those two, the end of suffering and death, death with dignity, I guess the last thing I would just point out is often, sometimes there is a financial consideration here either in the euthanizing of other people or the desire for physician-assisted suicide. And, you know, costs are just going up so much, and, and there's a fear that we're sort of draining the system, and we can get into that a little bit later with extraordinary care and stuff like that. But, but oftentimes right. they, there can be a, this desire to kind of help uh, save financial, financially, too, for the family. Right, right. Well, all good points, Father. Our spiritual director today on The Inner Life is Father Carter Griffin, and he is leading us through a discussion and a consideration of euthanasia and other end-of-life issues and questions. If you do have a question about an end-of-life issue and would like to have it on the air, give us a call, 888-914-9149, again, 888-914-9149. Perhaps uh, you had a situation you were faced with, with a difficult end-of-life decision. We'd love to hear the story, 888-914-9149. You can always send us an email as well, innerlife at relevantradio.com. Well, I'm I'm in contemplating all these things. Another thing that I, I would point out is that uh, oftentimes people are, are making this after kind of a, a long, even if it's not from an explicitly, maybe especially, I hope, if it's not from an explicitly Catholic standpoint or viewpoint, they're trying to make this decision. It's not like a snap decision either, but there's many considerations to be done. Uh, in the midst of that. And usually they are, you know, they have a loved one, a family member who are, uh, and sometimes it's the person himself, sure, but uh, they're accompanying that person towards death. And I think that's that's one of the things that uh, the church does actually laud. It's it's something that we, um, that we approve of and encourage is to accompany someone towards death, just maybe not in this direction. Right, Father? Exactly. No, I mean, I think that, that that's such an important point, that it's not, we can't just sort of sit back and say, well, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong. Well, <laughs> then what do you do when somebody's struggling with suffering and, and end of life and loneliness and the desire to die with dignity? And I mean, these are all very legitimate fears and concerns. And, and I think that in those moments, above all, for us to be present with them, what you were just saying, kind of that, that showing compassion, accompanying them, you know, making sure that they are not alone, uh, physically alone and, and sort of spiritually and emotionally alone, that they, that they feel that connection with other people. And, you know, one of the things I find, it can be such a beautiful way for a family, for instance, 
you know, to, to show compassion and to teach compassion to their children is to bring them to a local, a local nursing home or someplace where, where oftentimes there are elderly patients who have nobody, no family members, no one comes and visits them. But to have a young family come in and hold their hands for a few minutes and say some prayers and talk about their, their past, you know, I mean, there, there can be something so meaningful about that. Um, and so I think being a physically a company, humanly, a company, but also with, with faith, right, and, and helping people to kind of see the dignity of what they're going through, the majesty, really, of what they're going through. And as difficult as it is, when, when their minds are opened to the possibility that their suffering has some meaning and can actually be very powerful, you know, the most powerful people in our presence are, are probably, you know, locked behind doors that people never, never see. You know, the, the, the people who are suffering alone and, and physical ailments, emotional and so forth. And so helping people to see in, a, in an appropriate way that, that if by uniting these sufferings to, to those of Christ, they could be very, very powerful. Um, I would also just say, you know, that obviously we do believe in, in alleviating suffering, right? And so painkillers, uh, with different ways of, of um, even, even if it means, as the Church has said this over and over again, even if it means in certain circumstances that they're, they're, they're their life a little bit, you know, you don't do that intentionally, of course. But these ways of alleviating pain um, and and making sure that people have adequate pain relief is also very, very helpful, while at the same time making sure that they, there's a kind of an, a lucidity, you know, a clarity when they need it, right? I think sometimes there could be a tendency in some hospice care situations to just overdo it on the, on the painkiller so that even lo- loved ones coming in, you know, they can't be recognized and maybe reconciliations aren't happening and things like that. So that's kind of a deeper conversation. But, but certainly making sure that we have adequate uh, pain relief is very important. And when you do these things, you know, Catholics especially and Christians, it can be a very peaceful thing. I mean, not every death is very peaceful. Some are, some are not. But it can be very peaceful. It can even be joyful. You know, I mean, there's just story after story of people, ordinary people, you know, dying with a smile on their lips. And, um, and oftentimes that's because good people have, have accompanied them. They've stayed with them. They've helped them to open their minds in faith, uh, give them appropriate pain relief. Um, so dying can, should, can be this kind of joyful, it can be this, this joyful approach towards uh, not the end of this life so much as the beginning of the next. Very good point, Father. Let's take a phone call. We've got Patricia who's calling in from Reno, Nevada. Patricia, welcome to The Inner Life. Yes, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I was a caregiver for my father, had dementia and a neurodegenerative condition, and he went into the hospital for pneumonia. And I guess my question is, they, because his, his underlying diagnosis was incurable, they said hospice, and just for ending his suffering, but some of the family members felt like there were some treatments that could be done to extend, at least extend, but not cure the, the neurodegenerative condition, but at least extend his life. But I just wondered, because um, in the end, we did choose hospice, and we took off all the treatments that, and um, to sustain his life, but I guess is that against church teaching if we feel that there is some treatment that like a feeding tube that could extend his life even if it didn't cure him yeah thanks patricia for that uh for the, it's, it's a really important question these um and i think the first thing i would just like to say is that you know these uh one thing that i've, I've come to learn over the years is just how um particular each case is it's extremely hard to have over you know sort of over generalizations but I think a few points just to draw out. The first thing is just the beauty of <laughs> you being a care a caregiver, and you know, for someone with dementia, it can be 
some of the most thankless kind of caregiving, and therefore some that I think our Lord sees with such joy, you know, and that the beauty of caring for somebody who is not able, frankly, to, to adequately thank you, because they don't even know that they're being cared for sometimes. And and yet in heaven, I, I can imagine the reunion of, of, of those individuals with their caregivers is going to be something to see. So thank you for that, for that witness. Um, you know, I, these... I think one thing to draw out from this is just how important it is to have good, clear communication, right? That the family is all involved, that people, that, that doctors are, are trying to do, you know, their best and they're, they're, they have, they're dealing with a lot of patients and also with a lot of circumstances and they maybe understand aspects that we don't, we who are not medically trained. And so, you know, but at the same time, there is that need for, for good communication and to slow things down as necessary. So like, Doc, we need to we need to have a little meeting here. We have the family. We need to understand the circumstances of why this is being recommended, and you know, because we have to make this difficult decision on behalf of our loved one. Um, so I think con- conversation and communication is super important, so that later on people aren't saying like, "Gosh, I didn't even know what was happening." I feel like we could have slowed that down. It, that's not always possible. I mean, sometimes decisions have to be made very quickly. But the other point I would just like to make is that look, these things are so complicated that there are certain bright lines, for instance, and maybe we'll get into this, some of the conversation here, but there, there are, we, we can't stop feeding people just because we want, you know, that's a kind of euthanasia by omission, right? We're basically starving people to death. Having said that, there are going to be circumstances where that actually can be counterproductive, particularly if it has to be through a feeding tube. Um, there are going to be circumstances where the doctors know this person has just a few hours left, you know, in which case, you know, we don't have to put in a feeding tube at that moment. So there are going to be, there are going to be exceptions even to something like that. But the bottom line is that the church says we always have to provide ordinary care, right? Food and water is not treatment, right? <laughs> that's not medical care. That's just what you do for people. I mean, that's what we all, you know, that's care. That's ordinary care. Um, and so, you know, those are the circumstances we need to say, like, doctor, now what is, what is the purpose of, of withdrawing that kind of, uh, and it might have been just more different medicines. It can be, you know, there's so many aspects to this, but I think knowing that, you know, there, good conversation is necessary. And then at the end of the day, Look, you have to rely on the expertise of, of those that are caring for your loved ones. And, you know, you can look back on it and kind of always do the, the second guessing. I'm not sure that's always that helpful. And be able to say, like, well, we acted on the information that we had, you know, and, and be very much at peace about that. I mean, the Lord certainly doesn't expect, you know, everyone to suddenly have a, have a, have a medical degree and, and know exactly what to do and bioethicism and everything. Like, you know, so it's just to kind of be at peace. You know, no, no, you did the best you could and, and to kind of... Um, to rejoice in the life that that you've left, that, that 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 has left you, you know, and and hopefully in anticipation of of that reunion one day in heaven. Amen to that, Patricia. Thank you for the phone call, and please keep listening. I think we're going to be covering ongoing issues that would play into that, and many of us, if we haven't already, will someday face these difficult end of life questions. We're talking today about euthanasia and end of life questions with our spiritual director, Father Carter Griffin. If you have questions about the church's teaching on euthanasia or end of life issues, give us a call triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be back with more of the inner life coming up right after this. Looking for a new job? How about one that offers you opportunities for spiritual, social, and charitable growth? Our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is hiring new agents today. Visit relevantradio.com slash forester, an Illinois life insurance society, not available in all states. Relevant Radio on RelevantRadio.com and the Relevant Radio app. 
Thanks for listening as we're talking today about euthanasia and end-of-life questions with our spiritual director, Father Carter Griffin, the rector of St. John Paul II Seminary in Washington. Father, we uh, some of the things that we sometimes don't foresee as individuals who are, especially if we're in a situation of trying to make an end-of-life decision for a loved one, is uh, on the larger level, on the societal level, some of the, what are some of the unintended consequences of a society that does practice or allows euthanasia? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the, the big one is that it's very, once you have legal protection, you know, diminished for one category of people, it, it, it just has this tendency to extend. I mean, an example of this is like in Belgium and other places that have had phys- physician-assisted suicide and legalized it. Well, you know, it was originally for older people who were suffering a lot and all this stuff. And now it's been extended over and over again. And now there's now children, children as young as eight and nine, you know, are are are, are saying that they want to end their unbearable suffering and are and are being allowed to do so. Like this is a sort of just the respect, the legal protection for all human life is weakened. But I think maybe even broader and more important than that is just once you start to set this precedent of basically ending lives in order to save money, um, then society's most vulnerable people are going to be very much at, at, at danger. And we've seen this over and over again in this kind of youth, youth um, this, um, this approach to sort of cheapening human life in that regard, uh, kind of this eugenics mentality. Uh, once, once, our self, once, once our productivity and our, our, you know, is, is essentially what causes our dignity, well, then once people become old or unproductive or they're mentally not able to do what everyone else can do, and I mean, all these categories of people suddenly become very much uh, at, at danger. And I, and I know that some people listening might think, well, that's kind of unreasonable. This is very limited circumstances. But all I can say is that, you know, when it has happened, I mean, it's seldom stood still. It almost always advances to more and more people. Um, and then I guess the last thing is just that when, pe- when somebody dies, especially in an untimely way, you know, it affects a lot of people around them. They, they understandably are suffering and maybe want to end that. Um, but there are a lot of other people around them that you know, are, are going to be hurt perhaps by their passing, and especially if it's done in a sudden uh, and aggressive way like this. So there's just a lot of effects on people near to us and also people far and kind of the, the lowering of the, te- of the tone, of the, especially the valuing and the cherishing of human life across society. One of the things that occurs to me too, Father, that's related to the first couple of things you were saying there, specifically, I wonder if it doesn't foster a mentality amongst the amongst the populace at large that a human being's value and dignity is really tied somehow to their utility or to their functionality. Yeah. Would you say that's true? I think true? so. I think so. And you know, and one, and, and this is one of my biggest fears is that once this is what I'm once people who are elderly, for example are able to ask for, you know, suicide, right? For, for the doctor, physician-assisted suicide. Now, this is kind of, a relate, you know, kind of related to euthanasia, type of euthanasia. Once that becomes legal, then um, them choosing not to do that can become sort of almost like a selfish choice, you know? Mm-hmm. Once, like, they're younger, they're, you know, when it's costing a lot of money, you know, there's medical treatment, there's nursing care and all these things, and it's costing a lot of money, and they're choosing not to pursue this legally approved form of suicide. There is a tremendous, and it will be only increasing, pressure on people who are vulnerable, the elderly, the ill, and so forth. More and more pressure for them to actually take that option as the selfless option. And the selfish option is not to take it. And that's Once we turn, sort of virtue becomes vice and vice becomes virtue, that's when things really, I think, start going south. And that's one of the main reasons I think that the physician-assisted suicide is, is, is a bad idea. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, very good. We're talking about euthanasia and end-of-life questions here on The Inner Life with our spiritual director, Father Carter Griffin. If you have a question about an end-of-life decision, if you've been faced with that, or maybe right now you're being faced with that, give us a call, ask your question, 888-914-9149. Let's go back to the phones. We've got Margaret, who's calling in from New Jersey. Margaret, welcome to The Inner Life. Thank you very much for taking my call. Um, question for Father. I um, lost my dad, my dad, my mother, and my husband. And in all three instances, uh, they were on hospice. And hospice, of course, withdrew all, you know, medicines and so forth that they were taking. Um, and they couldn't really give them any nutrition uh, because in all instances, they were unable to consume the food or even to drink. We just had those little sponge um, things that we put in their mouth, you know, to moisten their mouth. But they weren't able to consume. This was very upsetting to me, and I was thinking, you know, maybe they should have been hydrated or they should have had feeding tubes. Uh, I, I stressed over this in all three cases. And I just wondered if, you know, the church sanctioned this, kind of procedure that people go through when they're dying, that they simply can't consume the nutrition. Right. And you know, and, kind of uh, yeah, thanks, Margaret. I, it, it's, um, it is a common thing, and it's, it's it happened in, in the, all three cases of those loved ones of yours. Um, and, and I think to, you know, this is where you sort of, you have the principle, uh, and then you have kind of the application of the principle, which has to take into a, a, a lot of circumstances. The principle certainly is that anyone who can who can who can be hydrated? Who can who can nourish themselves and hydrate themselves? Certainly needs to be given the opportunity to do that. That's what I was saying earlier. It's just kind of ordinary care. There are going to be times when you know once the body starts to shut down, and someone's death is approaching. Like these are some pretty these are some natural things that start to happen, right? Their their desire and even their capacity to receive nutrition and hydration does change. Um, clearly, the as you said, you know, with the with the sponges and things like that, that there are ways that we can they can alleviate some of that the suffering of the thirst and so forth. But look, I mean, this is you know, I, I don't know the circumstances exactly of of um, your dad and your mom and, and and your husband, but but there is we do have to be peaceful with sort of allowing the natural process of dying to take place, um, and that's and that's I think what I, I find the Catholic approach to this whole question to be so kind of reasonable and, and, and beautiful and authentic and, and neither one extreme nor the other, right? It's neither this frenetic desire to keep someone alive for forever, but neither is this frenetic desire to kind of give complete absolute autonomy and control to us. And it's this sense of like, no, God is in charge, you know, and, and, and the bodies are going to start to start to start to um, start to fall apart and start, start to, um, be, you know, prepare ourselves really for that separation um, of the soul from the body, which we call death. Uh, and to kind of allow that to take place peacefully and, and to alleviate suffering when possible and in, in reasonable ways, um, but also not to then look back on it and sort of worry too much, you know, and to say, like, well, this is the way that God, you know, allowed them, allowed them to go. Um, and, and to get good advice, you know, if there's a circumstance where you think, well, I, I, I think there's no reason why this person cannot receive ordinary hydration and nutrition. I mean, get good advice from, from somebody who, from a Catholic, um, from, uh, from a Catholic physician or, or somebody who can, who's been formed in this way or trained in this way, and they can, they, they can offer maybe another, another opinion to you, for you. 
Thanks for the call, Margaret. And uh, yeah, I I can understand the the feeling that's there and the uh, understanding that that's distressing a distressing situation. As many of these, Father, many of these situations are and can be distressing, and especially if we have a close friend or loved one, family member who's undergoing some of these, these end of life issues. That's what we're talking about today here on the Inner Life Euthanasia and End of Life Questions. If you have a question, please give us a call, 888-914-9149, or send us an email, innerlife at relevantradio.com. Let's go now to Diane, who's calling in from Austin, Texas. Diane, welcome to the Inner Life. Hi. Um, thank you for taking my call. I have a quick question. Um, I am in need of a kidney transplant, and I'm wondering, how does our faith um, approach that, and what do they say about it? What do we say? Um, yeah, thanks, Dan. And this is kind of a larger question too. Of just in, in general, what do we what do we consider to be medical care? Um, and and I, I guess at its broadest, I should have a definite definition in front of me. But it's essentially it's using it's using medical techniques or technologies and so forth to help the body um, sort of uh, come to its to its natural and its fullest um, kind of capacities, right? And so there's a big difference, for example, between um, Restoring a kidney that is not there or that is that is diseased in some way, and and replacing it with another one, which is perfectly acceptable in Catholic in Catholic teaching, um, as opposed to like somehow genetically altering somebody to do things that are beyond a human capacity, right? That the church would say is is not medical treatment, right? That's a different thing, um, and so anything that restores us to health is uh, if it's done in a in a in a morally, you know, licit way uh, is, is certainly acceptable. And that would be a great example of, of, of restoring your body to the health that it hopefully will have one day again. And, you know, recognizing that it may not happen or mean it may not, it may not work out. You may not have that kidney. It may not be accepted by the body or, or other, th- you know, but, but to, 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 to attempt that desire to restore the body to full health, that's something that's always acceptable in Catholic teaching. Hmm. Very good, Diane. Very good question and helpful uh, explanation there from our spiritual director, Father Carter Griffin. And uh, yeah, I appreciate the phone call, and it's really getting into that extraordinary versus ordinary means of care as well. Father, do you want to you want to just take a moment just to delve into that a little bit more about what are we talking about in terms of ordinary and extraordinary means of care? Sure. Yeah. Um, and and it's kind of already in the. Uh in the in the names of these things, one of them is is ordinary. I, I want to, by the way, I want to point out something that there is a document on the on the USCCB uh, website that I think it's in its sixth edition. It's called the um, the Ethical and Religious Directives. I think it's called Catholic Healthcare. I forget what it, the full title, but it's ERD, Ethical and Religious Directives. And there are there's a lot of good information in there, including this this distinction between ordinary um, and extraordinary. And and essentially, ordinary are um, ordinary treatments are things that are well established. Um, they're not excessively burdensome. Um, they're proven that they, they, this is, there's a high chance that this will actually help. Whereas extraordinary treatments can be extraordinary precisely because there may be it's not as clear that it's going to help. But there may be more experimental. Um, there may be side effects, you know, physical or, or, or psychological side effects or something like that. It may just be very expensive. And what the church says is that ordinary. Um, and this changes over time, by the way. I mean, penicillin today, obviously, is ordinary, you know, for most, hopefully, every country in the world is pretty ordinary, but it wouldn't have been at one time. Um, and so, yeah, the ordinary and the extraordinary is, is, is a kind of a judgment call. 
and the church says, look, we, you know, we should pursue ordinary treatment, right? We can't, if, a, if you have a 35-year-old man and he has a pretty simple treatment he can do for whatever the disease is, and if he doesn't, then, you know, there's a good chance that he will decline and, and eventually die and not be able to support his family. I mean, these, these are, as opposed to somebody who is, is older, you know, who might make a different determination about the same kind of treatment. Um, and so there is this judgment that's being made about what is ordinary and what is extraordinary, and part of it is objective, right? A cost thing is objective, like... But even there, it's relative to the financial ability of the family, right? And so taking all these different considerations in and hopefully getting good advice from people um, as you sort of sort through this ordinary versus extraordinary care for a loved one or for yourself um, from well-formed friends, from your parish priest. Um, I also want to make a shout-out, by the way, to a great organization called the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Uh, and anyone can get onto their website, the National Catholic Bioethics Center, and there's tons of great articles or great resources. There's even a way that you can contact somebody to get kind of a con- consultation, um, which is a very, very important uh, resource. So those are kind of, there's a lot in that. But, I mean, just to kind of make that distinction is very important because this is where I think you find that beautiful, balanced kind of Catholic approach to death and dying, right, where it's, it's uh, yeah, of course we're not just going to ignore treatment or sort of essentially by omission cause somebody's death, but neither are we going to ignore the, you know, the, the fact that some things we just don't have to do. You know, it's, it's going to be too painful or too, too risky or, or too expensive or something like that. And that's perfectly fine, right, to be at peace about that. Wonderful. And we will put links to both of those resources in the show notes on, the, on our show page. Uh, if you just go to relevantradio.com and click on listen and find the inner life there um, to both the National Catholics Bioethics Bioethics Center, as well as the Ethical and Religious Directives for Catholic Healthcare Services from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. We need to take another quick break here on The Inner Life, but there's more to come, so stay with us. If you are in the market for health insurance, our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is here to help you and your family find the most cost-effective health plan. Learn more at relevantradio.com slash forester. Patrick Conley, my thanks to Nick Sedovich, our producer, and not one but two folks helping out on the phone today. Gabby Burke and Thomas Engesser have both been lending a hand there. And our, my thanks to our spiritual director today, Father Carter Griffin, author of Why Celibacy? Reclaiming the Fatherhood of the Priest, Cross-Examine Catholic Responses to the World's Questions, and Forming Fathers, Seminary Wisdom for Every Priest. We're talking today about euthanasia and end-of-life questions. A lot of things that come to the fore when a loved one is facing the end of their life. And what do we do as Catholics, and how do we know how the Lord would have us act in those situations? If you have a question about those things, give us a call, 888-914-9149. Again, 888-914-9149, or send us an email, innerlife at relevantradio.com. We've got Lori, who's calling in from Minneapolis. Lori, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm a retired nurse and also as a caregiver, and one thing I really noticed about suffering is not so much the physical pain of suffering, but also the unresolved grief or regret that patients and family members um, weren't able to resolve as they were dying. Um, And sometimes we forget that piece, the importance that spirituality, um, whatever that may be, what their beliefs are, play in the importance of that. Also, as a healthcare um, worker, I also see sometimes um, not everybody discusses allowing life to unfold naturally with comfort 
is an option, and sometimes aggressive means of treatment um, doesn't necessarily prolong life, but it prolongs um, suffering. And the last thing I wanted to just say is that when we talk about both vulnerable people, um, the unborn babies truly are the ones that are um, being aborted, and they are the most vulnerable. Um, during COVID, we actually did a disservice to our seniors when we isolated them. Many of, many of them did not get um, um, last confession and communion because of isolation. And um, just wanted to know what your thoughts are on those different things. Um, and I appreciate this topic today. Great. Thanks, Laurie. <laughs> Those were three, three great things to talk about. Yeah, and you're right. You're so right. Like we can, we can so easily forget. We live in such a sanitized kind of world where suffering and especially death is just sort of sealed off and, and we're sort of isolated from it. And so when grandma is dying and it's the first time you're experiencing death, you don't know what to do with it. I mean, it was just, there was, a, there was much more um, kind of ease around death and kind of an understanding this is part of life, you know, that, and so people could talk about it and I think now, because it's such, an, it's, such a, it's such an alien thing to so many people, it's very difficult for them to talk about death. And therefore, when they're with a loved one who is dying, it's, you know, everyone's, oh, it's going to be fine. You're going to be, you know, and, and there's never really a real heart-to-heart about this process of suffering, this process of dying. Maybe if there's, as you said, unresolved grief or regrets or people they need to be reconciled to or things they need to say before they die, because everything has to be this kind of very cheerful, hunky-dory, you know, everything's going to be fine, Oftentimes, those really serious conversations don't happen, and that is not a that is a disservice to those who who are dying. Um, and and I think you're right too about like we have to have those hard conversations about that. Just because it can be done doesn't mean it ought to be done. Uh, and sometimes those treatments, you know, I think when an older person or or somebody who's very sick or whatever says, you know, I think I've I've tried all that I need to try. This is clearly not sort of ordinary treatment. It's expensive. It's risky. It's painful. It's this, that, and the other thing. And 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 it may not even work, you know. And if it does work, it probably won't extend my life very much. And so, I, I think I'm going to forego that, right? And being able to give people, in a sense, permission for that, I think, is very, um, very important. And. And I think your last point just about the vulnerability of the unborn, but also the vulnerability of the elderly and how we often did not do a great service to them during COVID. I just, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think one of the great tragedies and one of the great, yeah, injustices really in a sense uh, is what we did to those who, who died lonely and without the sacraments and without loved ones. And, and I understand that there was a lot of fear driving that. And, and, and maybe at the beginning, it was even felt like it was essential in order to just protect society. But at some point we knew a whole lot better and we could have done a whole lot better. And, you know, and, and I think it's spotty. You know, different parts of the country did better than others, but I hope we learn from it for the next time, if there is one, God forbid. Mm, yes. Lori, thank you for the call, and thank you for those excellent points. Father, thank you for your responses, too. And one of the things that Lori's call really kind of brings up in my mind is we're talking about end-of-life issues, and especially when we're talking about accompanying another um, in the journey to death or towards death, is to make sure that we are doing everything we can to help facilitate any kind of spiritual care that the patient is, uh, or the the person who is dying is at least open to have. And you want to talk a bit about the importance of that? Yeah, and and sometimes it's going to be you know people who themselves are not really believers, but they know that the that the one who is dying is, and and so it might be something that could be helpful. A helpful discussion within families is to say that, you know, if I'm 
because it may be that children or grandchildren just have no clue that, you know, you're supposed to call a priest and have this person anointed and hear the confession and so forth. And so maybe giving a little bit of instruction about that on the, you know, that's sort of one side of the, of, of the, of the thing. And then the other one is, yeah, there may be somebody who's distant from the church or, you know, and, and we cannot underestimate the power of grace at those moments. Um, that moments when kind of it, it clarifies and it crystallizes a lot of things when we're when we're close to when we're close to dying when we're close to leaving this earth when we're close to meeting meeting God, um, and so to to not be ashamed of of broaching these spiritual topics even with somebody who maybe seems to be so hardened uh, and so resistant you know say like it. Do you, do you want to see somebody? Would you like to see a priest? You know, and, and certainly if someone's Catholic, you know, to offer the opportunity for them to go to confession before they die, uh, to receive anointing if possible before they die. So, yeah, I think the, um, you know, we, we see, and it's, it's understandable, our loved one is there, they're dying, it's painful, or in a medical environment or facility or hospice care or something like that, and everything seems very kind of um, physical and material, but it's, we have to like deliberately stop and think. Well, hold on. The most important thing that's about to happen here is spiritual and not just physical. And and I have to. Maybe I'm the only one in the room who's thinking that way. And so, I need to think that way. You know, and make sure that this person has the opportunity that uh, you and I would want to. Mm-hmm. And just to clarify, there, Father, there might be some who are listening who aren't sure even how to go about getting some uh, getting a priest there to hear a confession or give the anointing or the viaticum or, or whatever it might be. Um, right. What is the practical way of doing that? Sure, thanks. Um, I mean, most hospitals will have uh, a chaplain office, and they will have either a chaplain, a Catholic chaplain on staff, hopefully. You know, sometimes it's a layperson, not a priest, in which case the layperson would be able to come and, you know, be able to uh, offer some wonderful services of talking and things like that. But they also will then be able to call a priest, you know, and know who to call at a parish nearby. If if you're in a situation or a hospice care situation or whatever it might be where there simply is no quick, you know, uh, institutionalized way of, of getting hold of a priest and, you know, pull out your phone and see where the nearest Catholic church is and start calling, you know, and, and say, um, I have a loved one here who's Catholic, who's dying and needs the sacraments, you know, and, and I've, I've tried, there's no one here who can, who seems to be able to help me and fi- find a priest, you know, and this is what, what we're for, you know, and, and it might be hard and it might be difficult. A priest might have to come in from, from a ways away, um, but, but, you know, to make sure that, to make sure that at least you're making the effort to bring a to bring a priest to the to the to the bedside. Nowadays, we have the advantage of oftentimes medical institutions have a much much better sense of the timeline, and so priests on their ordinary rounds, for example, visiting the visiting a hospital, if 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 a hospital has that, you know, a priest would be able to anoint and hear the confession at a regular time, you know, that as he's going around. But there are going to be these uh, circumstances that come up, in which case the priest needs to be called. We we want to be called, you know, to that's well that's why we're priests. Right, right. Excellent conversations that we're having around euthanasia and specifically end-of-life questions as we've been talking about the uh, the care that is required and the care that uh, we are to give to people, both physical and spiritual, as they're nearing the end of life, what the Church uh, prohibits, but what the Church also encourages in all of these issues with our spiritual director, Father Carter Griffin. Still got time for maybe one or two more phone calls, so if you'd like to give us a call and ask your question, it's 888-914-9149, again, 888-914-9149. But maybe, fathers, we're just looking at the last few minutes of the show here. Maybe we should at least do a recap, if not any other suggestions that you might have. Um, because, again, just to underscore, I know people aren't necessarily in their most focused way um, when they're watching the final hours or final days of a loved one in a hospital situation or a hospice situation, even if uh, it, if they can see that its death is looming near. 
Um, but so where can they go to get their questions answered? What the, what should they do in those types of situations to make sure that one, they're not violating church teaching, but two, they're providing for them in every way possible that that the Lord would like to provide for them. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is talk to the person if they're able to talk and, you know, talk to the person who is the subject of this. And the subject is not the doctor and it's not you. It's the, it's the, it's the patient. It's the person that we're speaking about. That's that, the, the, the sort of the decision revolves a lot around that person, where they are, what their desires are, what they're, what they're feeling about this whole situation. So making sure that they're not, sometimes I think people in, can be in the bed, you know, and everyone is talking around them about them, but no one, no one asks them. You know, yeah. what, what, what he or she would like. So making sure that we understand their desires to try to make good decisions. Second thing is there are almost always uh, like an ethics committee in most hospitals. And oftentimes if they know your desires as Catholics, they can be very fair and, and, and neutral in trying to offer you different alternatives. But then I would say have somebody that you can, a, a priest or somebody that you know, somebody outside kind of the immediate circle who can be a point of reference for you, right? Somebody who can kind of be a, a neutral and objective a sounding board, and who can also offer advice and, and suggest what the, what you know what the church teaches and, and say what you, all that. There are those physical resources that I mentioned earlier, the ethical and religious directives and the USCCB document, um, which can be helpful. But I think having that person outside the circle, making sure the communication is good within the circle, with the family circle, for example, and above all, speaking to the patient, him or herself, uh, I think is so important. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think you you make a great point on that, Father. That uh, yeah, it's it's so easy in those types of situations to leave the the subject, as you said, uh, out of mm-hmm. it, out of the conversation. Um, if the if the subject is able to get in on the conversation, obviously, um, it's good to know what uh, what they would think. What about ourselves? How can we prepare ourselves? Maybe I mean, I I pray I'm not uh, that close to death, at least not yet. But uh, what can I do to prepare um, for the time when maybe I will be facing death and not able to communicate my wishes? I'm so glad you asked that because I think there is this, and even good people are sometimes um, you know suggesting that a Catholic should sign these. Um, what do you call it? The, uh, the, the living will, you know, right, and yeah. there's a, there's a formal name for that, but those are gen- almost always bad ideas. And the reason is, is not because there's not bad, they're well-intentioned, but you cannot cover all circumstances in a document, no matter how thorough it is. What is, it's those, I suppose, in certain limited circumstances can be helpful, but what is needed is a medical proxy, right? Somebody who can make decisions for us that we know will do so in a way that is respectful of our Catholic faith and who will, who will make the effort to find out what is the right thing to do in this circumstances or that circumstance. So that's clearly one thing is like preparing ourselves and helping so that we don't leave our family and our loved ones in the lurch and trying to figure out what we would want. We'll be able to say, no, this is the person that I've designated if I can't do it my, myself. Obviously, the most important thing of all is preparing ourselves for a good death, right? And this is going to come upon all of us uh, sooner or later. And to look forward to it in a way that's like, obviously, nobody relishes the idea of dying, but we really shouldn't be afraid of death, right? There's a difference. Uh, and because death is, is that time when we do meet our good, merciful, loving Father, right? And, and to know that He is the best of, the best of fathers and the best of, uh, of judges, right? And, and to know that we will have His mercy and to prepare ourselves for that moment of encounter uh, by living a holy life right now uh, and trusting in His mercy in the life to come. Yeah, yeah, very good. Our spiritual director today has been Father Carter Griffin. Father, may we have your blessing before we go, please? 
I'd be happy to, Patrick. May the blessing of Almighty God descend upon you and upon your family and loved ones and all of our listeners. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of the show, go back and listen on the show page. We've got a couple links to the resources that Father mentioned there as well, so check those out. Coming up next is the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass with our celebrant Father Ed Looney and tomorrow on The Inner Life, the Rosary. So we hope you can join us for that. Thanks for listening this time. Until then, grace and peace.